Transmission will start in five seconds from now. Five, four, three, two, one, in. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack ass inflections from Patrick McCoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially It's a degree absolute. Glenn. Chris, my friend. In an act of formal daring never before witnessed in the podcast sphere, we're going to make it 24 minutes into this episode before either one of us utters a word. Deal? <laughs> uh I will wait. You, you you blew it. You blew it. No, no, no. What's going to happen is I, I will wait, and then the first thing I will say is just very um, emphatic Romani dialect. Just really <laughs> strong. Just a, uh-huh. I'm going to make big, bold choices is what I'm going to do. Yeah, so I didn't try to find out whether that was a, a real language or designed not to be a, a language like number 58's dialect in Free For All. They have all the stereotypical signifiers of Romani people, so I'm guessing it's they're supposed to be. And in fact, they're labeled as such later on in the episode. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, I guess the only thing I have to say about that is that in 1966, Patrick Baguin, star of the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident is identified only by a number. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously and lava-lampedly of its time. That short-lived, long-tailed mm-hmm. series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. Welcome once again to the private, personal, by-hand, punch-card-driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and we... I've been waiting for this all week. We push it like a penny stock. Sure. We file it like an insurance claim. Okay, five out of six. We stamp it like General Zod. Sure, okay, six out of six. Good reference. We index it like a nonfiction tome. Sure, four to six. See, I yeah, I always have to level it out. After you give me fulsome praise, I need to mm-hmm. take it down to our usual dynamic of, uh, you know, sort of middling acceptance. Uh, we, <laughs> we brief it like an encounter by Noel Coward. Nice. See, this is good. This is good. Five out of six. Yeah. If debrief is always the one this that... It's going to be tough. This kills is the, me. Uh, this is the tough one, yeah. We debrief it like a returning alien abductee. Sure, sure. Using it in the same sense, but uh, I'm, I'm going to give it to God, you. Oh, God, man. There are just so many facets to this. I would just go with the depantsing, variations on someone being depantsed. <laughs> I, uh, okay. Pants, I, I, I thought that I had pants, exhausted so, yes. that. Depants would be put on pants. That right. usage of, of debrief, but uh, perhaps not. Perhaps I'm wrong. Uh, we number it like the tail of an RAF Gloucester meteor jet, as we sure. shall see in this week's uh, episode, see, Many was, Happy Returns. I knew you'd bring the knowledge. We are going to talk McGoons. We're going to talk McGuffins. Our inquiry uh-huh. into this still perplexing document is not of a degree. Eh. It is not of a degree. Eh. It is not of a degree. What? What is it, Glenn? It's of a degree absolute, Chris. See. Right. Right you are. Bring in the emphatic. Bring in the emphasis. 
Yes, you always bring the emphasis, Glenn, with a capital M. Okay, all right, fine. We are famously, tunefully, always emphatic. Unlike number six, we are both of us men of great emphasis. Oh, and emphasis, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, emphasis, emphasis. Uh, like the sisters are doing it for themselves. Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a great eurythmic song. One of us is an emphath, like uh, Counselor Troy on Star Trek. <laughs> and Raven of the Teen Titans. All right, Glenn. Well, um, we are neither of us perfect specimens. We do make frequent errors. And a friend yep. of the show, Patrick Flynn, who mm-hmm. has recently had you as a guest on the Original Cast podcast, wherein yep. people talk about uh, favorite original Broadway or, I guess, West End cast albums, mm-hmm. points out that it is not Horatio, but Laertes, who is the lone survivor and Hamlet. So Glenn apologizes for the error. Um, yeah. I, uh, Glenn apologizes for agreeing with you that you said that it was... Exactly. It's exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly what, what I the, said. Yeah. Sorry, we blew that, all, all you uh, Elizabethan uh, purists. <laughs> As uh, William Shatner said on Saturday Night Live in 1986, <laughs> get a life! <laughs> Will you, people? Yep. <laughs> uh, Patrick, we'd very much appreciate you. Um, you have my Venmo, so just send me your lunch money. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. We are grateful for your correction. Yes, good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes, I'd like to insert a, a, a private advert in the personal column of the next issue, please. Certainly, sir. What is it? I have it written down. Sort of personal joke between myself and uh, a certain friend. We have some uh, listener mail. Listener mail, Glenn, are you ready? I, I Are am. you ready? Are you ready to hear from Dan in Philadelphia? You're a, a Westchester County boy. Not a, not a county. West Town is the township. Uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania is the name of the city. that I, The town. The town. The village okay. that I grew up in. Yeah, and the playground is where you spent most of your days. Uh, yep. Yeah. Um, yep. So this is sort of a one-time neighbor of yours, maybe, I guess. Dear Glenn and Chris, I was introduced to The Prisoner by my Uncle Richard, who remembers the series fondly. He apparently saw Patrick McGowan on Broadway many years ago. It must have been hmm. Pack of Lies in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. My mom also has a weird obsession with Patrick McGowan, once having gone to great lengths to obtain a VHS copy of The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, which I still have. Eventually, I bought the DVD box set of The Prisoner and revisited it regularly. It is so delightfully weird and pretentious, and my teenage self loved it without irony. Yep. I'd love your thoughts on how this fits in along other spy shows of the 1960s. Is it a relatively straightforward spy show like The Man from Uncle? Is it a parody of itself like Get Smart? Or is it poking fun at the genre like The Avengers? Anyway... I love your podcast. It is clear that you love the series, and I'm looking forward to the rest of your analysis. Be seeing you, Dan from Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, this is this is great. I I you're better equipped to talk about how this slots into the shows of its time. Um, I thought the Avengers was. You know, not necessarily a flat-out parody, but like a heightened version of a lot of the like '60s spy tropes. Yeah, it is. It is very episode, Alice in Wonderland that uh, that whole show, which I the I episode love. coming up called "The Girl Who Was Death" is going to be a very heightened version of spy tropes um, in a in a big way, a very Avengers kind of pastiche. But uh, we haven't gotten there yet. This is. This is you. You can speak to this better. Yeah, well, and I, and I mean, we've we've kind of been talking about this through the the entirety of our show, where I I feel like this is a point of bitter contention among story editor George Markstein and executive producer Patrick McGowan. I think Markstein he thought he was continuing on with the further adventures of, of John Drake from oh. Danger Man. That was certainly a selling point. 
even though it doesn't sound like that's what Patrick McGowan pitched to Lou Grade, um, you know, Lou Grade was certainly aware that his prospective American buyers for the show would like a, a follow-up to to Danger Man, which, you know, was a proven concept. It was uh, mm-hmm. globally successful. So uh, I think it was not in any way a straightforward spy show, but certainly they benefited from the confusion about that. And I, I actually think they, they probably should have promoted that angle a little more, although I say this just from a purely latter-day retrospective fan vantage point and not from the perspective of a television producer who's trying to make money. Right. And when you drop in mm. the ads that, uh, I guess it was CBS in America? Yeah, would, that's right. Like, like mm-hmm. the press now has blah, 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 blah. That guy, whose voice I've heard many, many times, like he's a, 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 a well-used voiceover artist. On this channel. Is he doing Orson Welles, or does he just sound like Orson Welles? There's an Orson Welles vibe there, right? You agree? Uh, I guess I can hear it, but... Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It doesn't sound to me like he's he's doing Orson Welles like the uh, the the guy who did it on um, Pinky and the Brain. Right. <laughs> uh, Try to take over the world. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for your email, Dan. What else we got? Spencer in Chicago. I know you don't think that you can take aspects of the prisoner too literally or logically, but three things always bugged me about the cold open, which we see for three minutes every episode. First, as a superb agent, why wouldn't he notice he is being trailed by a hearse? Good point. Alex Cox would disagree with you that that the prisoner is necessarily a a superb agent. He argues that he's something else. But uh, yes, I would think that almost anyone would notice a hearse right behind them. Uh, Second, if he knows he was in danger and was going to flee anyway, why would he not have packed in advance or left for wherever directly after resigning? I mean, I think that's an easy one. He needed to go back and get his glossy 8x10s of his destination. <laughs> yep. I don't know. I can't leave before I break a tea set. Uh, third, putting logic aside, when he is drugged and starting to pass out, why are there shots of high-rise buildings spinning around? This is something I've wondered about. The street he lives on has regular English flats, and he resigned in some government building and not a business district. Stock footage for budget reasons or some other reason... That I missed. I don't know. I kind of imagine that that Birmingham place is, uh, there's probably some like high rises around there because it's downtown London, right? It's like, it's, I would imagine it's not just all like a tufty, quaint neighborhood street. I think it's probably. Uh, my, my London geography is not good enough for me to know the answer to this. I'll tell you what I think of every time is, um, whatever reason, the, the Alan Moore, Eddie Campbell comic series, From Hell. Mm-hmm. A reference I have not made on prior episodes of this podcast, Glenn. Uh, <laughs> this great, you know, kind of Dickensian look at the, the Victorian society, which is not at all a whodunit about Jack the Ripper. I mean, yes, it is a look at the social milieu of, of the Ripper murders, but this series posits that William Gull, the royal physician, was the Ripper and doesn't make too much of a suspenseful meal out of identifying the killer but throughout that series he starts to have visions of contemporary london i think it is contemporary times even though it's you know 1888 and this this was published in i think you know 1990 1991 around then Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with anything but i think of that every time as uh as mcguin is blacking out and we see that tilty shot of the high rises Mm -hmm. that's what comes into my mind good to know yes separately 
was that the hearse driver I thought I saw in Free For All at one point? Did you did you spot the hearse driver from the opening titles anywhere in Free For All? I, no, not that I know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's, they, they, they're all dressed like Undertakers, but I just figured that was like, you know, Yeah, dress. and clearly in, in the general, we see that the lecture approval committee, the school board or whatever, they, they, uh, <laughs> that's, that's uh, their expected mode of dress. Top hats. Thank you for a most enjoyable trip down memory lane. The 10-year-old in me thought this show was completely nuts the first time I saw it, and I still do. Spencer Waller, Chicago, Illinois. Thank you, Spencer. Uh, all right, we got one more. Hi, guys. Just finished listening to the Schizoid Man episode on my walk around my village this morning. I think he's using village without uh, without irony there. Uh, I can't wait to listen to The General, which I will watch tonight. So are you almost... <laughs> I remember vividly watching with my brother and dad back in 1968 when I was 13. Great show for a, wow. for a young teen. We were really into it because we loved Disney's Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. McGowan was the Scarecrow. This aired in 1964. Anyway, I'll leave you to your work. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Uh, the Scarecrow <laughs> of Romney Marsh was not no one idea. of the McGowan titles that was... Uh, in conversation for a special episode but you know one reference to the scarecrow of romney marsh could be an accident but two sounds like carelessness as oscar wilde once said yeah, it's true uh, so did. uh yeah pretty sure that's for band. and three is a trend right so i i think we probably need to add that to um our list as long as we can still get a vhs copy of it somewhere uh-huh Thank you, Jim Shirley, for that letter. Thank all of you for your letters. Please keep them coming. The bell rings out over the village. An ominously silent, utterly deserted village. This is the time the prisoner must make his bid for freedom. Back to his homeland and his friends to many happy returns. But now, no one will believe in his world of fantasy. I'm not sure which side runs this village. The past is unreal, the future uncertain, unless he can find his prison, the place they called The Village. Don't miss this next suspense-filled episode of The Prisoner. There it is. All right, Glenn, so here we, we find ourselves this week discussing Many Happy Returns, episode seven in the broadcast order, intended as episode 13. This was supposed to be their big first season finale. Yeah, it makes sense as a first season finale. It makes sense being a little bit later in the running, particularly when we get to some of the episodes that come after this in the broadcast order. Uh, this is Many Happy Returns, or Six Gets Punked, you could call it. It is Well, that, that would describe most... several episodes. Yes, but this is by far the most elaborate gambit the, uh, the village has pulled off. I mean, just think about the buy-in across all levels of the organization, the number of interdepartmental meetings, the cross-team... Uh, workarounds, getting everyone out of their silos so that they can do things all at once. Like village electricity has to talk to Transpo yeah. to jitney all these villagers to what their underground bunkers. Where where did they go? This must have been easily one of the more expensive episodes to shoot because of all those locations. Uh, we start with number two, generic number two, generic villain number two in the village. Robert Rietti. Yep. We can do a deal. He's their guy. Whenever you don't see the guest actor number two speaking those lines, it's Robert Rietti. And we get a shot of Rover instead of a shot of number two saying, by hook or by crook, we will. And we see in the credits that this episode will feature the talents, and I do mean the talents, of one Georgina Cookson. Georgie C, my gal, MVP of this episode, light of my life, fire my loins. Wow. She is giving Leo a run for his money 
simply on the strength and the boldness of her choices, the commitment she brings to this role. All right. So you are you are a Butterworthy, Glenn. You are a Mrs. Butterworth stan. Wrap me up and pour her all over me because I love <laughs> what she is bringing to this episode. It starts with Six waking up in his apartment. He is, uh, I guess we've known this all along. We've seen him before. But he's a stripy pajamas guy. Yeah. In a way that I guess a lot of people in the 60s, a lot of dudes in the 60s were stripy pajamas guys. Um, I think every dude was. Does that have to do with maybe... Yeah. Serving in the military, I, I associate that with the the production code, with the like the married couples having their twin beds in the same room, and one foot has to stay on the floor if if someone is in in bed. Because I have never in my life, not once, not in my forty years, have I ever slept a full night in long pants, long sleeved, top and bottom PJs. Doesn't matter how cold it is. That's that's I just that is a chastity belt is what that represents. You would leave, one would leave a kind of uh, a shadow of sweat, a, a kind of imprint of sweat on the bed right. if, if you were dressed up like that. I don't understand it. But uh, he tries to take a shower, but there is no go. There is no water. There's no electricity. He steps out of his apartment and finds the village completely deserted, except for a big chunker of a black cat, a big guy, a big cat, uh, that will feature in an upcoming episode. Uh, right. From the that evidence, was, that was Dance of the Dead, which was again intended to be shown before this one, but it wasn't. Uh, although it does share a screenwriter with this episode, and Anthony Skeen, who also gave us A, B, and C, mm-hmm. featuring Georgina Cookson. Uh, featuring Georgina Cookson as, and this is complicated. I had to go back and check. She plays in A, B, and C. The woman six meets at one of Madame Angadine's parties, a really wild party. Uh, she plays a woman who hands him one of her earrings that he then plays on the roulette table, number six, to get the key that somehow reveals that Madame Ungadine is C. It's uh, a lot of hoops to jump through. Yeah, yeah. But uh, she, she brought a lot. She brought a lot to almost nothing, to a part that had very little to do, and she brought a lot, as she brings so much here. Yeah. It seems like it was a sudden departure. It looks like the village has gotten raptured. Some tables are overturned. Uh, he climbs the bell tower to get a better look. He rings his bell like he's a need award. We get the quick zoom in on an eagle statue because, for no reason, he goes to the green dome and finds it mysteriously and ominously butlerless. Yeah, I, I uh, like that he has to pry the doors open, the mechanical doors that you know, sliding Star Trek doors, without having to put his little fingers in the in the slot and, and muscle them open. I like that. Yep, you don't get the wishy sound. Uh, number two's office is also empty, and instead of doing anything, pushing a single button, he just leaves. He doesn't go and explore that cavern, which we know is right off this room, yeah. uh, where there's the the rover cult and the straw floor. He doesn't uh, he doesn't press a button. He doesn't try to play with any of the chairs. Nothing. He just leaves, uh, and takes a mini moke to the outskirts of the village, something he's not apparently been able to do before because Rover would stop him, uh, and to reveal stock photography of some steep mountains. Um, yeah. I think if this was made today, there'd be something like a like CGI cliff saying, I can't go this way. But as it is, he just looks at, at mountains, and that seems enough to discourage him from the whole notion of overland travel. Yeah, which I got to say, man, I, I think I, I might take the mountains before I would take the the three weeks at sea on a raft with uh, a wool sweater and uh, a couple tins of village beans 
for sustenance. Uh huh. No warmth. Yeah, those village beans seem magical. We'll come back to the village beans. They oh, seem very, yeah. very powerful. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, he could go to this general store and get a backpack. And yeah, yeah, it would be a lot of trekking going over mountains, but it would be just in terms of the effort involved. He builds a raft. That is a lot of man hours. That is a lot of work. To, well, I mean, it's not it's not as much working. work as it has to be when you are trying to disguise it as an abstract of uh, yeah. the, the great achievements of, of man and also a church door. Like it doesn't have to be that's a transformer true. in the way that his prior raft had to be. No, that's true. That's true. Um, he does raid the general store, but it's a very polite, very British raid because he leaves an IOU uh-huh. for 96 credit units. We see the symbol for credit units, which looks like a little teensy number four. I don't think it's 964. I think it's 96 <laughs> credit units. Yep. Um, so that's the very Batman thing to do, right? If you have to take some supplies from a store, you, you leave a note with a little bat insignia or, or <laughs> explaining that you've left cash in the register. He signs his number to that IOU, which seems wildly uncharacteristic that he would uh, internalize his but the he, that he was But assigned. he puts but a question then, mark after it. Then comes the prestige. Yes, uh, here it is, the reveal. <laughs> Take that authority, question mark. He then goes and takes a camera. So does he go back to the table and erase the 96 and add whatever the camera is? Right. But he, he takes a camera, he collects uh, evidence, he documents. Goes clicking around uh, like, he's like he's Marisa Tomei and My Cousin Vinny. Yep, you blend. He gets supplies, and he builds that raft, and he sets off into an orange alertless sea in a very good sweater. I gotta say, I like the sweater. I am pro him in this sweater. He makes a rudimentary compass. He keeps a log. Uh, he's really getting his contiki on in a big way. He does keep shaving. Chris, shaving every day was the first thing to go in the quarantine. Yeah. Like, it would not be my priority. No. I would not have. I would probably brought a razor, but what's he? What's he using for shaving cream? Is it just using seawater? That's gonna chafe. I don't know, man. But he he looks good, a little scruffy. That, that flinty beard to, yep. to match the flinty personality. I think it works for him. I think it's a good look. Uh, we'll see somebody who looks a little bit better in a beard uh, in a in a few minutes. Uh, day five passes. Day seven passes. He seems to be sleeping, sitting up, which seems wildly dumb. I think we're just meant that that shot is meant to show us that he's really just exhausted. Uh, day 18 passes. He raises the sail. It's, I think it's the first time we see him raise the sail, which can't be can't be true, but that's it. Then we see him passed out. Yeah. And uh, he gets boarded, if you can board a raft, uh, by some really low-threshold pirates, some pirates who go out of their way to rob his meager belongings, take that uh, those cans yeah. of... Um, because we, we see them eating their penny-farthing canned soup or whatever it is. It's amazing to uh, me that they would the do that. Scene. They must have been you know at sea for a long time. But they toss him face-first into the drink, but he rallies. I think those yeah. village beans, Chris, must be packed with protein, must be packed with nutrients. Because you got to figure he's been rationing for 18 days plus. Uh-huh. And he finds the wherewithal, yeah. the superhuman right. strength. He tells us later he's been sleeping four Crazy. hours out of, out uh, of every 24. He sneaks 24. aboard their ship and finds that these two, I would say they're not not hot kind of Tom of Finland pirates, uh, are eating his vittles, as you said. Uh, they are eating it, especially the beans, out of the can, which seems like they're they're desperate or maybe they're just, maybe they're just over it. So there's one very kind of <laughs> handsome bear-like captain and a more kind of weaselly mate. Uh, they look like they've been at sea a while. Uh, down in the in the hold, he finds a cache of weapons. Now, at this point, Chris, he could just go up there and splatter the cabin with their brains, but that wouldn't be sporting. 
not according to Hoyle. No, that's that's not how Magoon no. would do it. It no. would also it would also bring the episode about in about ten minutes short. So instead, this elaborate ruse involving you know deglazing a pan and then creating smoke by burning <laughs> some towels. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then the first one, the hot one. Yeah, a lot of a lot of opportunities for these clearly armed pirates to find you just just messing around in it the galley. It doesn't make any sense. So the the hot one comes down uh, to investigate first. Uh, he knocks him out, um, and then we see the Weasley one up in the cabin go, Gunter, what bist du? And then he tie. Then that guy comes down, and uh, McGowan number six knocks him out and ties them both up in the room yeah. with a cache of weapons, which doesn't seem smart. Yes, they're tied up, but they're sailors. They know from nuts. And you don't you don't leave them. Yeah. There's got to be another room on the ship, but anyway. Yeah, so some of the, the cutscenes from the script deal with Six's suffering while at sea. It makes it clearer that he has run out of food, that he is hallucinating, that he thinks this is the end. Also, there, there was some stuff before he leaves the village. Like, apparently there, were, there was a scene where he goes to the hospital and frees oh. some lab rats that they took out, yeah, which I think would have been a nice little little moment. They would have just got eaten by that cat, though. I mean, like, that's not... The cat would just be... <laughs> right. It's, it, it would not be uh, the, the life of Riley for them. So once he boards the, the boat, takes out the pirates, he does not ditch this wool sweater that has been... <laughs> he, he has been fully submerged in water in. I mean, those things dry never, right? Presumably he is freezing. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think warmth is right up there near the top for survival. So why doesn't he take off the sweater and help himself to one of those cozy, cozy looking pea coats that both pirates have? I would think your first step before you even start cleaning up their kitchen for them would mm. be to get warm. That's a very good point. Uh, I, I, I really like how these uh, pirates, these gun runners, we, we find out they're gun runners, uh, dress. I like the pea coats. I like the little hats. Um, I... I had created in my head a little fantasy kind of, you know, existence for them, the two of them out there on the sea. I mean, they've got some pretty chaste uh, pinup girls in that uh, galley. So, yeah, you know, it kind of kind of would right. argue against my theory. But yeah, well, L- Lou Grade did try to sell the spinoff series Brokeback mm. Gunrunners, but CBS was was not having it. You know what? Even if it's not true, you know, I live in hope. The sea changes a man, Chris. You never know. Uh, so he commandeers their ship. <laughs> I mean, now, 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 the time like that is that is tailor made for HBO. Absolutely, Max. Um, Hot Gunter wakes up, and of course they untie each other immediately. And this happens just as Six spots a light coming from the shore. They're very industrious, even though he's blockaded them in the room. They just knock through into another room and escape from that room. What do they take yeah. with them? Not the weapons that are <laughs> right there. No, they just come up and attack him by hand. Uh, Gunter, God love him, reacts to a punch a good three seconds before it lands because you know that's just this yep. is this is where we are. Well, that is polite of him because I, I have to assume that after three weeks at sea, exposed to the elements, subsisting on village beans, sleeping four hours a night, you're probably not fighting fit. You're, you're you know you're probably not fully combat ready at that point. You certainly point. couldn't, I don't know, I'm just picking this out of the air. Climb a cliff, could you? No, you probably couldn't. <laughs> anyway. No. Uh, finally, not... Couldn't even climb a norm. Yeah. <laughs> finally, uh, not Gunter gets a gun. It's a Luger because German. Um, and that, the sight of that gun, I think, causes Six to jump ship. Uh, and he awakes the next morning on a rocky shore with a lighthouse 
that is what 200 yards away if that I'll get over a flat surface that would be mm. very easy to go over yep. to and yep. knock on the door because this is before the time of automated lighthouses I believe um, he checks to see that his camera and his log are still on him in, in waterproof plastic uh, he then does this thing where he pockets them and this is where my suspension of disbelief would go no further because you can't shove a big bulky thing like that into your pockets without kind of ruining the line of your pants but we don't see it we don't see it, it just kind of disappears into to like a bag of holding as soon as he yeah. puts it into his pocket i didn't do good plea like pants continuity on this where we do see when he meets the um romanis one, one in trouser leg is, is fairly shredded but i didn't watch you know scene to scene whether the clothes degradation is consistent. i think that uh the the pants get torn as he's climbing are these the white cliffs of Dover? I mean, what is he, like, instead of going to the lighthouse, he turns around and climbs, what is fueling this man at this point? This man has been starving, sleeping for four hours, and he climbs a cliff. Uh, he meets a man with uh, very pronounced features, walking his, it's a greyhound, it's a borzoi, it's a vizsla. Who knows? It's one of those dogs, one of those uh, long, yeah. long, pointy dogs. Dire wolf. Follows him to a campfire. And then these people that we've talked about before, with all the outward signifiers of Romani, um, offer him water, I believe. Um, and the woman who does so is making big choices. She is just, she is going with it. She, well, she wants to be There's a language barrier. I mean, they, they need to be understood. She's emphatic with everyone around her. Um, she points him to mm. a road where, dun-dun-dun, British bobbies are putting up a roadblock. Um, and I think the months he spent in the village uh, being told how important he is have certainly fed into his god complex because he naturally assumes that these police are looking for him. He doesn't trust right. the popo, and he runs from them and sneaks into the back of a moving truck to grab some shut-eye. Uh, this was impressive, right? That thing was going about 30 miles an hour, and he just runs like i mean yes it's it's a it's a country road again yeah subsisting on 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 village beans and um being exposed to sunlight and cold and and everything all day long for three weeks remarkably hardy this guy two more deleted scenes here where uh, as six was uh sleeping in the back of the lorry mm. which is english mm. for truck he was to have hallucinated that he was being driven across some like barren alien landscape and then uh, again, that he was being driven through the the village, and they they took that out for reasons because unknown. It'd be confusing as hell, is why I think. Did you ca happen to capture the uh, name on the back of the lorry, Chris? Oh man, it, uh, there was uh, there's something on the milk truck later, but this, this one is, uh, no, no, I didn't. Netco, Netco, like net as in things that like Capture Inc. Yeah, <laughs> like Trap Limited, Confine yeah. LLC, Netco, which actually turns out to be telecom. Oh, you know, we're so desensitized to like web startup language that uh, that shit doesn't. Yeah, even and it's actually, more. I think, an actual British telecom <laughs> but, service. So you know, so even even so, it's got prominent product placement. He is awakened by a very British siren and tumbles out of the truck to find himself in the middle of swinging London, Carnaby Street, Seville Row. He he goes to his old home where the maid refuses him entry um, because he looks slightly unkempt, ever so slightly unkempt. Um, I think she probably thinks of him as a hippie yeah. because she seems to be of that generation who would frown at uncoiffered hair. But he asks to speak to her master, which I, I, would a hippie say that? 
that's true. It, it feels a little weird. And then she corrects him. My mistress is not at home, which isn't any better. In a nice touch, he is about to leave, and then he hears the sound of a very familiar engine. And that's what makes him turn around to see his old Roadster Lotus thingy being driven up by Georgina Cookson, who is decked out incredibly well. She gets the Rockstar parking. She pulls up right to his door, her door now. And I mm. love everything Georgina Cookson, my gal Georgie C, is, is giving you. She is living the fantasy. She practically purrs her every line. Her delivery is so knowing and intimate and flirty. She's part Eartha Kitt, part Ursula the Sea Witch. Yeah. Um, I love everything she's doing. She looks him up and down. I mean, she takes her time to just let her, her eyes glide the full height of his body all the way down to the toes and slowly, slowly, slowly all the way back up to eye level. He doesn't say, my eyes are up here, but he'd be justified in she saying that in that moment. She is warm for his form. She is a Tex Avery wolf, and I am here for it. I love everything about it. We get the the classic line, the line that I love. I know every nut and bolt and cog. I built it with my own hands. Then you're just the man I want to see. I know every nut and bolt and cog. I built it with my own hands. The first time you and I ever discussed this show, Glenn, I, I don't think we were a minute in before you had, had busted that out. So I think that's that might be your reflexive association with the prisoner. True? It is the delivery of that line, Chris. It's, it's like a series of slamming doors. Uh, these single-syllable phonemes that end with a hard consonant. Nut and bolt and cog. And then uh, that, that anger mm -hmm. that comes out at the end, I built it with my own hands. He manages to make the, like, first of all, he asks what the number of her car is. And she says, why don't you tell me in an incredibly sexy way. And then right. she says, what's the engine number, which is not a thing. I mean, what is the engine number of your car? What's the engine number of any car? It turns out to be 46103-4TZ. But uh, that's because he knows it. I mean, I, I hope it has a Z in it. <laughs> I'd like to think that there's a Z in there somewhere, if, if there's a serial number on the engine of the 2007 Saturn Ion that I recently bought from my parents. <laughs> <laughs> engine number. Anyway, uh, she invites him in. Uh, and what I like about this is that she invites him in to the, is it the study? Is it the sitting room? I don't know. Is it the parlor? Who the hell knows what it is? But it is the room that the village based his village apartment on. And we get a really nice reaction. And I, I am astonished. You have not yet mentioned, not on any episode of this series, where we have discussed his quarters quite a bit now. You never mentioned the tiger rug. Like the full tiger skin rug with the tail, with the head, with the whole fucking tiger laying on his floor. You never talk about it, Glenn. Yeah, it's, Why is it's, that? It's rough for me because it's just, it's not, it's not a good look for him. It is incredibly tacky. And it is, like, <laughs> if it was, like, an actual pelt and we saw, like, the tiger head, like, that comes off the floor, that would be one thing. I, I, I wouldn't excuse it, yeah. certainly, but I'd be like, there's an authenticity. That is, that is a major tripping hazard. Totally. And it's, but it doesn't have that. It's just a fakey fake tiger rug. It, it's not a good look. Um, she then explains that her name is Mrs. Butterworth, which, come on. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't say, oh yeah, well my name's Hungry Jack, <laughs> or my name's Aunt Jemima, or my name's Log Cabin, <laughs> or my name's Uncle Ben, or my name's no. Betty Crocker. No, he says Peter Smith. He'd have to be a little more imaginative to pass himself off as uh, Little Debbie, Uncle Ben. <laughs> he, 
he, when he says his name is Smith, Peter Smith. Uh, you can see his eyes goggling around for a little bit, and he is just lying like the lyingest liar who ever lied a lie. To which she replies, Enchanting. Be comfortable and I'll be back in a moment. Enchanting. Which, let's stipulate, is an odd reaction to hearing the name Peter Smith. <laughs> it's just no one in the history of time yep. has mm-hmm. ever responded to Peter Smith. <gasps> and it's not like it's Anastasia Beaverhausen or, or Francesca Fiore or something. It's, it's Peter Smith. <laughs> My name is Peter Smith. It's a, a sign of how into him she is. He says, uh, you must think I'm crazy. And she says, just, I love this delivery too. Who isn't these days? As she lights a fucking cigarello. She's so hip. She's so with it. She's got that cap. I love everything about her. One of these books, one of this stack of books that I have here. And again, my citation game is is failing. Sorry, authors. But uh, there is, I think it was maybe Morin Shaw who said that in Skine's first draft... Mrs. Butterworth was an older woman. I mean, Cookson is is a decade older than yeah. She than is forty nine. He's thirty nine. But um, right, as shot, it says she is she's widowed, and she says even though there isn't a man about the place, I like to feel that there is. Which is a utterance that we would have trouble with now. I wonder if that raised any flesh colored eyebrows in nineteen sixty seven. Maybe, maybe not. But she's offering number six a change of clothes. She still has her husband's full wardrobe. In the initial draft, it was her son. She was mourning the loss of her son. So there was a greater age difference between her and six. And apparently it was, surprisingly, McGowan himself who suggested that there should be a little closer in age so that there could be at least a slight flirtatious element of uh, sexual possibility between them, which is not the kind of thing you would expect McGowan to inject this is the closest he has come, and probably, I think, will come to having any kind of chemistry with not just a woman, but any other character in the show. Uh, and while most of it, that chemistry is streaming off of her, he is reflecting some of it back. There is something between them, even though it's there's a slightly maternal thing there, but there's also uh, actual gratitude on the part of number six. It's not a, a, a vibe that he, he gives off sure. as often. And um, after she hands him that plate of finger sandwiches, this is a guy who's been at sea for three weeks. He'd certainly be hungry. He'd, he'd even be hungry for those disgusting, colorless, little British oh, finger sandwiches. Oh, I just I saw that, and I just remembered those sandwiches, which are just, they're pillowy white bread with butter and watercress and cucumber. It's like, what if food, but no nutrients? What if, what if you ate something that was... Yeah. Almost literally nothing. What if what if it supplied you with almost nothing? <laughs> we're we're going to make you do the work of chewing. Yeah. A little bit of chewing. It, it, this will vaporize upon your tongue. Maybe pop another can of village beans before you get into another fist fight. What must have happened to his blood sugar? I mean, just think about that. He has been starving for days, and then it's nothing but sugar and butter coming. Anyway, um, she talks about her late husband, Arthur, a Navy man. He never grew a beard, though he... She has rather a soft spot for bearded men. And, she does, uh, Glenn. Lady, you and me both. I, I know where you're coming from. Though it's, mine's not really a soft spot so much as something very much else. Oh, uh, God. Enough. Enough <laughs> already. And save that filthy talk for your, your other podcast. <laughs> she uh, admonishes the maid for her lower opinion of Mr. Smith when he came, which is completely unnecessary, and I don't know what it's doing there, and it's it's just more flirtiness. But it's like, why, why you got to throw the maid under the rug, right? She wants him to sit yeah. very yeah. close to her on the couch. And then uh, things really heat up when he asks to see the lease of the house and the car. <laughs> Get 
talk of real estate agents and other gripping real estate procedure. Well, it's on then. I mean, that's when you know you're in. One doesn't wish to presume, but uh, once the person you brought home wants to see the (laughs) lease agreement or your uh, auto insurance card, yeah, then then it's happening. If if they were going to start talking amortization tables, I I just, my eyes started (laughs) to glaze over. Anyway... He says he needs to make two calls and leave, which confounded me because he's using it in the kind of old school to call means to visit someone, to call on someone, not to make a telephone call. Uh, And she suddenly breaks. She doesn't want him to go. She becomes animated in a way she hasn't been. That sort of louche, flirty uh, veneer completely drops. And I'm not sure what's going on there. I think on our first viewing of this episode, we're supposed to think that she's so desperately lonely. But is there something going on there that we, we now know she is number two and she is controlling this whole encounter? What was that moment there? Why was it important that he stick around and wear Arthur's clothes? I don't know. And I think I was more sensitive to this after you pointed out quite astutely, quite rightly, in the chimes of Big Ben that we get those exterior shots of the the ship at sea, the plane in flight, that would seem to make it explicit that uh, Six and Nadia really are floating and flying around to all these places. They're not just locked in a box with a little modesty (laughs) divider between them, Mm -hmm. you know, being played sound effects and jostled around to make them think that they're in transit. We get a scene like that, where once Six goes to see his his old boss, presumably the Colonel, although it's not Colonel Jay from the chimes Mm -hmm. of Big Ben, different Mm -hmm. Colonel. Village, number two. Oh, really? How dramatic. And Colonel turns to his skeptical aide, Thorpe, another actor we'll see again, and tells him to fact-check Six's account of how he came to be standing there in, in his office, then we do see a brief scene of some guy in a trench coat with a notepad, presumably a government investigator, speaking to Mrs. Butterworth. So she says, yes, he came to me, and I could see he was in trouble. Of course I helped him. I, I would help anyone in trouble. Wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, but Six is not present in that scene, so that's just there to confound us. Yes, this show lies to you, and uh, it seems to take a certain delight in doing so. This episode is trying to preserve some ambiguity. Uh, We'll come to that later uh, involving the pilot of the jet. There's a a missing scene there that uh, it seemed to be taken out deliberately to uh, embolden this, this kind of ambiguous reading. But let's go back a bit, because not only does she give him clothes. Not only does she feed him non-food, but she gives him his damn car back, or at least lends it back to him so he can fix the overheating and traffic. That is just huge. And then she says, come back and maybe Mm -hmm. I'll even bake you a birthday cake. She says it in a nice ominous way because, you know, we're going to need, we're going to need that ominous. (laughs) Don't forget to come back. I'll be back. I might even bake you a birthday cake. And then we get the yeah. opening credits montage, uh-huh. uh, complete with the theme music. He goes into the garage. Uh-huh. Uh, he opens the door. There's George Markstein, who's doing a crossword puzzle in that hopeless, dingy office. Um, he's got a map of the world behind him. Yep. Like a supervillain with a few cities lit up, because that's where they're pointing the death ray. I don't know exactly what's going on right. there. Now, knowing what we, we now know about the eroding relationship between McGowan and Markstein and the fact that this was the last episode of that initial 13 and that Markstein would not be back after these, that knowledge does lend a little extra layer of pleasure to when, when McGowan gets to saunter up to his desk and say, Anyone at home? Markstein actually look He doesn't look indifferent the way he does in the opening titles. He, he actually looks surprised, caught off guard, which I enjoy. Yep. 
Although he doesn't look up from his uh, his crossword puzzle until <laughs> entirely too late. Somebody just opened his door. You would look up. So, yes, as you mentioned before, the next scene, he's meeting with two of his superiors, the Colonel and Thorpe. We will talk more about the actor Patrick Cargill in an upcoming episode, uh, whom I love. That dude has such an eminently punchable face. It may not shock yeah. you to learn, Chris, that he's played a lot of Nazis in his time. And uh, the actor... Uh, Ate from my uh, end of the salad bar, uh, as it were, so to speak. Uh, and Not an expression that I've heard, but I uh, I understand it. And we will talk about this guy. This guy's really fascinating. That queen lived a life, let me tell you. Uh, and, and and thank God we no longer live in an era of segregated <laughs> salad bars, Glenn, because what a what a nightmare. <laughs> Just knowing you, like even even pre-COVID, I I knew you to be something of a germaphobe. So I don't I don't know how keen on salad bars, just in general, you you would be, no matter how uh, integrated and and. Yeah, uh, progressive and harmonious they Salad are. Salad bars are over for me. They are dead to me. Uh, never again. Anyway, he describes the village to uh, the colonel and Thorpe. At one point he says, it is a complete unit of our society. And it's like, <laughs> a complete unit. He said complete unit. Um, <laughs> there's some really good deliveries here. They have their own cinema, their own newspaper. And he says at one point that he could have been elected to the town council. What's wrong with that, Chris? Well, he, he was elected. <laughs> He, he clearly didn't watch Free For All all the way to the end like we did. Because, of course, he could have been elected. He knows he couldn't have been elected. That's like that's, that's a thin tissue of lies. My main issue here, though, Chris, is that we've done this before. We have had this exact scene before in the Chimes of Big Ben. It's a different set of uh, doubting officials, but it's... It's exactly the same dynamic. Yeah. We are just merely repeating. Right, down to the fact that one of them is someone he knows and trusts from prior to his yep. abduction. And while Thorpe's, you know, Cargill's delivery as Thorpe isn't as over the top as, no, he says, yet, yet. It's not big like that, not as fun <laughs> as that. There is something yeah. to the way Thorpe cradles a brown liquid, as he says, that, as he tells him that they doubt his story. You resign, you disappear. You return. You spin a yarn that Hans Christian Andersen would reject for a fairy tale. You resign. You disappear. You return. It's very. It's it's it's. He's got some of that uh, purring yes. quality that I love so much. Spin a tale that Hans Christian Andersen would reject for a fairy tale. <laughs> so Six says he's not sure which side runs the village. As you mentioned, the Colonel orders Thorpe to check every aspect of Six's story. And here's where the deal that the, that the episode makes with the audience starts to break down. Because we see, in fact, that they do. Mrs. Butterworth, you know, uh, sidles up to that hunky interviewer yep. on the same couch, mm-hmm. which must mm-hmm. have seen a lot of action over the years. The, uh, Bobby investigates the sign of the Romani <laughs> campfire. And then we find out that every bit of his story has been collaborated except for the boat. And here's a really nice touch. Really, I, I, I like this. Uh, Thorpe calls the people that uh, Six met uh, upon first coming back gypsies, and Six quietly corrects him. He says, Thorpe says, gypsies, and Six says, Romanius. Boom. It's it's not a big thing, but it's just, it's like, oh, it's, uh, yeah. who, who knew? He's 1967 woke. Good for him. That's he important. learns that the uh, roadblock had nothing to do with him, because not everything revolves around you, dude. And we learn that he was at sea for 25 days. Um, there's a lot of 
numbers thrown out here, and my eyes started to glaze over because it seemed like an extended word problem. If six leaves the village at you know three and a half knots, traveling north. Oh, I, I blah, thought blah, you would blah, love blah. this. I thought the navigation with ta- taking the sextant and the the compass and drawing a, a circle around his potential point of origin. I figured you'd be all into that, man. I'm not so much. I couldn't account for tides. Like I'm not into that. I am into the fact that we now know <laughs> where the damn village is, as emphatically and as concretely as this show is ever going to give us it is east of morocco southwest of portugal and spain and then one of the dudes in the room says maybe an island well well if it's east of morocco it kind of has to be an island. <laughs> like that's the way continents work dude like that's <laughs> it can't be east of morocco and not yeah, yeah. in the water this strikes me as incontrovertible proof this strikes me as like concrete it will get cut off at the knees at some point in the future but man it's um Right. Well, and then the way this plays out, you spoke of, um, what's his name, Cobb's comment at the end of Arrival, the mustn't keep my new masters waiting, and, and how you interpreted that as, well, clearly it's it's the the East, it's the, you know, communism, it's the Soviet bloc, it's who's controlling the village. This episode seems to suggest unequivocally that it's the West, and the colonel has to be in on it, has to be in on, on Six's abduction because they know where the jet was going. The single jet, which I, I mean, again, I really hate that I keep defending all of this sloppy screenwriting because it has the effect, intentional or not, of contributing to the the surreal vibe that I very much respond to. For example, I do think it is more interesting, more dramatic, that the colonel after his prized operative comes back to him with this wild story about where he's been, about this crazy village where all kinds of nefarious things that could threaten Her Majesty's government are happening, dispatches a (laughs) jet. A single jet, not a reconnaissance squadron. He doesn't send a whole fleet of the Royal Navy going looking for this place, which is probably what would happen, right? He sends, okay, yeah, we, we freed up one jet for an afternoon. Here you go. Now the colonel has to know where Six was, unless the... I mean, unless the pilot of the jet, the milkman pilot, took him somewhere else, which I don't think is very plausible, the colonel has to be in uh, on it. Not necessarily. Uh, Thorpe is probably in on it because no. okay. um, uh, I like to think that like, the character that the actor playing Thorpe is playing is the same character. But right. This, they have preserved some ambiguity by doing this thing with a milkman sneaking onto a uh, British airfield because we all know British airfields run on yogurt. Um, and didn't that happen in the living daylight? So wasn't there a... <laughs> Somebody get, infiltrates uh, someplace yep. by posing as a milkman. Wasn't that a thing? Yeah, and that milkman, that milkman assassin is someone. I think it might be Andreas Wisnius, who is Tony, the first terrorist who McLean kills okay. in Die Hard the year after okay. that. I think. Yeah, it's some you know one of one of those mm-hmm. Eastern European blonde dudes. Um, okay. Not Alexander Gudenov. <laughs> At we, some we point, the pilot is replaced. We don't see it. We see the new pilot show up disguised as a milkman. We see the original pilot getting dressed. Then we see the milkman walking out in the old pilots, the original pilots, jumpsuit and helmet. We don't see the scene where the new pilot knocks out the old pilot or confronts the old pilot. Apparently that was shot, but it was removed, maybe for time, but probably to try to preserve this anonymity. Hmm. Because why, if the colonel was in on it, would be this whole milkman mishigas? Why would that even be necessary? Yeah, I mean, presumably whatever, if there is some kind of technological means that the, the village has of making itself some sort of brigadoon where, where people can't find it, I guess they could also disguise a, a jet if they wanted to, make their airspace disappear from radar. One of the many whatever. shows this series inspired, or at least contributed to, was Lost, which had a magical floating 
traveling island. Um, so, yeah. but they do find yeah. the island after some, you know, banking right and left and banking southwest, and then the pilot ejects six first by having this kind of cheesy be seeing you like a little sing song thing now you edit a magazine about many other things but one of them is planes can a jet a high speed jet like that keep flying with an open canopy like that because isn't the ejection seat used when the the plane is yeah. going down isn't that and so it does so aerodynamics not not a looming issue when you are crashing uh, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, it could happen. It could, I mean, you wouldn't want to fly on for, for a long time like that, but with the, the, I mean, the biggest consideration with the depressurizing the cabin is obviously you, you would, by popping the canopy off is, mm -hmm. uh, altitude. Right. And they, I mean, they're, they're wearing mm -hmm. oxygen masks for that anyway. So yeah, that's, yes, that would, um, compromise the maneuverability of the aircraft, but unless you were going into a dogfight. Probably not a. It, it wouldn't be a critical concern. You, okay. could, you could fly all home right. and land. Fly so, all the way yeah. home because that seemed like a long way. If we are, well, I don't know. I don't know how far we're flying. So six is ejected. He uh, parachutes down in a shot that's very like Batman on the rope ladder with the shark. It's very, it's very green screen or blue screen or whatever mm -hmm. the hell they were using. Yeah. He lands on the beach yeah. uh, and starts walking back to the village. And that chunker of a black cat is still sitting in the same spot with the cracked plate that was there before. The village is still deserted. Mm. Uh, he walks back to his apartment, and I really like this touch. Uh, pretty much as soon as he walks within, you know, visual distance of his bathroom, the water in the shower starts running, the electric's back on, the cat's in his apartment. And then in walks yeah. Mrs. Mrs. Yeah. Butterworth, good That's old great. Sarah Lee herself, wearing a uh, black number two badge, the only number two to do that. Uh, it's a nice look on her. Everything looks good on her. She's carrying a birthday cake. He uh, looks out the window. He sees the villagers back doing their usual turn around the... Promenade around the, the fountain. The, the piazza, I guess. We'd call that a piazza, wouldn't we? The oompa uh, the music is back, and then village head zoom slam. You know, end of episode. Okay. Yep. <clears throat> they are clearly ramping up their efforts. How many times could they have pulled this particular gambit off before? It is a logistical nightmare. And what was the point of it, Chris? Was it simply to dunk on him just to show off? What what was accomplished here? In terms of what the architects of the village achieved, other than proving to him for what would seem to be just reasons of cruelty, that even when you think you've escaped, well, you can't that's what escape. I think. Again, this is where the there there is no way to to reconcile this show when non-allegorical terms, which again, maybe maybe is why the, the relationship between McGowan and Markstein is fraying by the, especially now. I mean, this is the last episode, production-wise, that Markstein was involved with. And I think this is where that tension between Markstein wanting to make a somewhat heightened and fantastical, but still mostly grounded espionage story, and McGowan not caring whether it made any literal sense, you know, wanting to make a purely expressionistic uh, meditation on, on paranoia and isolation. I think this is where that tension works to really good effect. I mean, that's a really good point. I, I, I agree with you there because I think if I'm Markstein, I can argue this from a story standpoint. This episode from a story standpoint is that this whole thing we're doing now is to prove to you, number six, that escaping won't change a thing. That not that escape is impossible, but that escape is pointless. Uh, it isn't worth attempting. 
And I'd really be in on that if that same point hadn't been driven home in Chimes of Big Ben. I mean, isn't that kind of what Chimes of Big Ben did too? What am I missing here? What's the difference between these two episodes? Um, six is a little nicer to Mrs. Butterworth. He's a lot nicer to, to Mrs. Nadia. Butterworth. <laughs> Look, I, I'm going to rank this episode very, very high. I'm going to give it a six out of six because I'm a sucker for deviating from the format. Yeah. And I love my gal, Georgie C. Wouldn't change a thing. She is so much fun. And yeah. uh, I, I want more of her in this mode. I, I just love everything that she's giving it. And it doesn't bug me. It kind of bugs me. It doesn't bug me that uh, we're kind of repeating ourselves already. We, we talked about how McGowan really felt that this was only a premise that could sustain itself for seven episodes. And there was this whole negotiation of like how much could you dilute it. I think... Two 13-episode no. seasons does not seem at all beyond the pale. For the, You just get writers who are imaginative enough, and I, I think they, they could have done it. I think McGowan just ran out of energy. I think he lost the stamina for this and suffered from his insistence on total control. This is something that Mark Steen says, that uh, McGowan eventually succumbed to egomania and wouldn't trust anyone else with any decision-making power. So the fact that the show kind of runs short on ideas is on him. We should mention he mm. did direct this episode. He, he doesn't use his own name on the credit. Mm. It's Joseph Cerf. That pseudonym choice seems to be his um, self-pitying comment on his working conditions. It's the 1967 version of Prince writing mm. slave on his face. Which, of course, I mean, McGowan had a level of autonomy and resources that no one had. I mean, there's he, he was nobody's surf. Mm -hmm. He had tons of power, but he clearly, by this uh, exhausting point in the production, saw himself as being mistreated somehow. So when uh, original director Michael Truman departed, supposedly for medical reasons, McGoon took over, but gave himself the pseudonym Surf, S-E-R-F. That's interesting. You maybe maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but you do sense a tension here. I mean, I I do think that just as a directorial job, this is tough because there are so many different locations. But a lot of the village stuff, the empty village stuff, had been filmed in that one kind of one month stretch when they were at the village. So it's there's a lot of McGowan. They didn't do all of their exteriors in September '66. They did the first four episodes. Like their their minimum was we, we need to get all of exteriors at least for the first four, and then we'll try to pick up more if we can. And they did end up recycling yeah. a bunch of that footage. But there were subsequent trips to Port Marion. This episode, many happy returns. They did return to Port Marion in the spring of 67 mm -hmm. to shoot some more stuff. So they didn't, that, that was not their only trip to Port Marion. That cool. was the the bulk of it in, yep. in September of 66. Uh, yeah, so how would you rate this? What's where, where does it fall for you? This is a six for me. Fully paranoid, full of haunting imagery. I think the... I think McGowan, for all his megalomania, I think his direction uh -huh. is very good. It's all taut and suspenseful. Yes, all that, that business on the boat is uh -huh. there to fill time, but it's certainly involving. It's, it's well edited. It's, it's suspenseful. I'm going to prevent another letter from some nautical obsessive and say, yes, we know that he did not kick through the wall and go from one room of the boat to another. He kicked through the bulkhead and went from a compartment to the okay. adjacent compartment. So you can... Save okay, that one. Cool. Hold your fire. Yeah, and I am really looking forward to Dance of the Dead, which comes next week. Uh, it's got a great number two. It's got a really uh, fun and fascinating mysterious radio message. It belongs a hell of a lot earlier in the sequence than this one does, but that's, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Another Anthony Skine. I think this is the, the third of the three Anthony Skine teleplays that were, were shot. Don't know if he wrote more, but three of them made it to, to air, which makes him one of the more prolific writers involved with the series. 
What else we know about Dance of the Dead? Apparently, Magoon, uh, when he saw the first edit, he decided he didn't like it, so it went on the back burner for a while, and then he had to get in, bring in another editor to try to resurrect it. So that was one of the reasons that it, in addition to the just overall strangeness of the content, which you've remarked upon previously, one reason it did not air as early as intended was Magoon was unhappy with it initially. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So uh, next week, Glenn, Dance of the Dead with um, Mary Mary Morris. Mary Morris. Another one who I suspect is going to get you in your, your cooks' place. Yeah, she really does. Mr. Peter Pan, I love everything about her. Right. Well, until then, Glenn, be seeing you. Be seeing you. Or, or as, they, as the pilot says, be seeing you. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Jonathan's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. You can find them there. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. Rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to hear it. Glenn and I are fully aware that this is a niche cast about a somewhat obscure and certainly old TV show, but if you know anyone who might be even notionally open to enjoying it, you, you might just employ the gentle art of persuasion. Quiet! Or that. It's no degree partial, it's a degree absolute. absolute. I have a question for you, and I want you to yep. consider it carefully before you answer. Yep. You think Mrs. Butterworth and Flapjack Charlie ever got together? Oh. Seems they might get along like syrup and pancakes. He's a widower. She's a widow. How do you know Mrs. Butterworth is a widow? She said it. Her dear Arthur. Oh, I thought you, I, was... I thought you meant the, uh, I thought you meant the uh, breakfast uh, offerings. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yes, you mean uh, <laughs> Mrs. Butterworth and Flapjack Charlie. Georgina C. Yeah. Georgie C. Her dear Arthur, Navy man, who would never grow a beard, but Flapjack Charlie had a mustache. Uh huh. True. Susan died. A year ago. A year ago. A year ago, number six. We don't know how long ago Dear Arthur died. They seem like they were made for each other. Mm-hmm. It's like one of them was made to be poured upon the other. Well, uh, we know that Arthur died uh, since Six has gone to the village because he was he had all his clothes in that house. And she said, I miss having a man around the place. So must be very recent. Mm-hmm. And she is bouncing back fierce. She yeah. is. She's yeah. doing great.